Chapter Sixteen of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume Three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter Sixteen, Seventeen Ninety Eight, The Egyptian Institute, Festival of the Birth of Mahomet, Bonaparte's Prudent Respect for the Mahometan Religion, His Turkish Dress. Djezar, the Pasha of Acre. Thoughts of a campaign in Germany. Want of news from France. Bonaparte and Madame Faure. The Egyptian fortune-teller, Monsieur Bertholet and the Sheikh El-Bekri. The heir, Marlbrook. Insurrection in Cairo. Death of General Dupuis. Death of Solkowski. The insurrection quelled. Nocturnal executions. Destruction of a tribe of Arabs. Convoy of sick and wounded. Massacre of the French in Sicily. Projected expedition to Syria. Letter to Tipu Saib. The loss of the fleet convinced General Bonaparte of the necessity of speedily and effectively organising Egypt, where everything denoted that we should stay for a considerable time, excepting the event of a forced evacuation which the general was far from foreseeing or fearing. The distance of Ibrahim Bey and Murad Bey now left him a little at rest. War, fortifications, taxation, government, the organisation of the divans, trade, art and science, all occupied his attention. Orders and instructions were immediately dispatched, if not to repair the defeat, at least to avert the first danger that might ensue from it. On the 21st of August, Bonaparte established at Cairo an institute of the arts and sciences, of which he subsequently appointed me a member in the room of Monsieur de Soucy, who was obliged to return to France, in consequence of the wound he received on board the flotilla in the Nile. Footnote. The Institute of Egypt was composed of members of the French Institute, and of the men of science and artists of the commission who did not belong to that body. They assembled and added to their number several officers of the artillery and staff, and others who had cultivated the sciences and literature. The institute was established in one of the palaces of the bays. A great number of machines and physical, chemical and astronomical instruments had been brought from France. They were distributed in the different rooms, which were also successively filled with all the curiosities of the country, whether of the animal, vegetable or mineral kingdom. The garden of the palace became a botanical garden. A chemical laboratory was formed at headquarters. Berthollet performed experiments there several times every week, which Napoleon and a great number of officers attended. Note. Memoirs of Napoleon. End note. End footnote. In founding this institute, Bonaparte wished to afford an example of his ideas of civilization. The minutes of the sittings of that learned body, which have been printed, bear evidence of its utility and of Napoleon's extended views. The objects of the institute were the advancement and propagation of information in Egypt, and the study and publication of all facts relating to the natural history, trade and antiquities of that ancient country. On the 18th, Bonaparte was present at the ceremony of opening the dike of the canal of Cairo, 
which receives the water of the Nile when it reaches the height fired by the Mechias. Two days after came the anniversary festival of the birth of Mahomet. At this, Napoleon was also present, in company with the Sheikh el-Bekri, who at his request gave him two young Mamelukes, Ibrahim and Rustan. Footnote. The general-in-chief went to celebrate the Feast of the Prophet at the house of the Sheikh el-Bekri. The ceremony was begun by the recital of a kind of litany containing the life of Mahomet from his birth to his death. About a hundred sheikhs, sitting in a circle on carpets with their legs crossed, recited all the verses, swinging their bodies violently backwards and forwards, and altogether. A grand dinner was afterwards served up, at which the guests sat on carpets with their legs across. There were twenty tables, and five or six people at each table. That of the general-in-chief and the sheikh el-Bekri was in the middle, a little slab of a precious kind of wood ornamented with mosaic work was placed eighteen inches above the floor and covered with a great number of dishes in succession there were pilaus of rice a particular kind of roast entrees and pastry all very highly spiced the sheikhs picked everything with their fingers accordingly water was brought to wash the hands three times during dinner gooseberry water lemonade and other sorts of sherbets were served to drink and abundance of preserves and confectionery with the dessert on the whole the dinner was not disagreeable it was only the manner of eating it that seemed strange to us in the evening the whole city was illuminated after dinner the party went into the square of earl Bekri, the illumination of which in coloured lamps was very beautiful an immense concourse of people attended. They were all placed in order, in ranks of from twenty to a hundred persons, who, standing close together, recited the prayers and litanies of the Prophet, with movements which kept increasing until at length they seemed to be convulsive, and some of the most zealous fainted away. Note Memoirs of Napoleon. End note. End footnote. Footnote. Rustan, or Rustan, a Mameluk, was always with Napoleon from the time of the return from Egypt till 1814, when he abandoned his master. He slept at or near the door of Napoleon. See Remosa, tome 1, page 209, for an amusing description of the alarm of Josephine and the precipitate flight of Madame de Remosa at the idea of being met and killed by this man in one of Josephine's nocturnal attacks on the privacy of her husband when closeted with his mistress. End footnote. It has been alleged that Napoleon, when in Egypt, took part in the religious ceremonies and worship of the Mussulmans, but it cannot be said that he celebrated the festivals of the overflowing of the Nile and the anniversary of the Prophet. The Turks invited him to these merely as a spectator, and the presence of their new master was gratifying to the people. But he never committed the folly of ordering any solemnity. He neither learned nor repeated any prayer of the Koran, as many persons have asserted. Neither did he advocate fatalism, polygamy, or any other doctrine of the Koran. Bonaparte employed himself better than in discussing with the imams the theology of the children of Ismail. The ceremonies at which policy induced him to be present 
were to him and to all who accompanied him mere matters of curiosity he never set foot in a mosque and only on one occasion which i shall hereafter mention dressed himself in the mahometan costume he attended the festivals to which the green turbans invited him footnote from this sir walter scott infers that he did not scruple to join the mussulmans in the external ceremonies of their religion he embellishes his romance with the ridiculous farce of the sepulchral chamber of the grand pyramid and the speeches which were addressed to the general as well as to the muftis and imams and he adds that bonaparte was on the point of embracing islamism all that sir walter says on this subject is the height of absurdity and does not even deserve to be seriously refuted bonaparte never entered a mosque except from motives of curiosity Note, see contradiction in previous paragraph d w and he never for one moment afforded any ground for supposing that he believed to the mission of Mahomet, his religious tolerance was the natural consequence of his philosophic spirit doubtless bonaparte did as he was bound to do show respect for the religion of the country and he found it necessary to act more like a mussulman than a catholic a wise conqueror supports his triumphs by protecting and even elevating the religion of the conquered people bonaparte's principle was as he himself has often told me to look upon religions as the work of men but to respect them everywhere as a powerful engine of government however i will not go so far as to say that he would not have changed his religion had the conquest of the east been the price of that change all that he said about Mahomet, Islamism, and the Koran, to the great men of the country, he laughed at himself. He enjoyed the gratification of having all his fine sayings on the subject of religion translated into Arabic poetry, and repeated from mouth to mouth. This, of course, tended to conciliate the people. I confess that Bonaparte frequently conversed with the chiefs of the Mussulman religion on the subject of his conversion but only for the sake of amusement. The priests of the Koran, who would probably have been delighted to convert us, offered us the most ample concessions. But these conversations were merely started by way of entertainment, and never could have warranted a supposition of their leading to any serious result. If Bonaparte spoke as a Mussulman, it was merely in his character of a military and political chief in a Mussulman country. To do so was essential to his success, to the safety of his army, and consequently to his glory. In every country he would have drawn up proclamations and delivered addresses on the same principle. In India he would have been for Ali, at Tibet for the Dalai Lama, and in China for Confucius. Footnote. On the subject of his alleged conversion to Mahometanism, Bonaparte expressed himself at St. Helena as follows. Quote, I never followed any of the tenets of that religion. I never prayed in the mosques. I never abstained from wine or was circumcised. Neither did I ever profess it. I said merely that we were the friends of the Muslims and that I respected Muhammad their prophet, which was true. I respect him now. I wanted to make the imams cause prayers to be offered up in the mosques for me in order to make the people respect me still more than they actually did, 
and obey me more readily. The imams replied that there was a great obstacle, because their prophet in the Quran had inculcated to them that they were not to obey, respect, or hold faith with infidels, and that I came under that denomination. I then desired them to hold a consultation, and see what was necessary to be done in order to become a Muslim, as some of their tenets could not be practised by us. That, as to circumcision, God had made us unfit for that. That, with respect to drinking wine, we were poor, cold people, inhabitants of the north, who could not exist without it. They consulted together accordingly, and in about three weeks issued a fetham, declaring that circumcision might be omitted, because it was merely a profession, that, as to drinking wine, it might be drunk by Muslims, but that those who drank it would not go to paradise, but to hell. I replied that this would not do, that we had no occasion to make ourselves Muslims in order to go to hell, that there were many ways of getting there without coming to Egypt, and desired them to hold another consultation. After deliberating and battling together for, I believe, three months, they finally decided that a man might become a Muslim and neither circumcise nor abstain from wine, but that, in proportion to the wine drunk, some good works must be done. I then told them that we were all Muslims and friends of the Prophet, which they really believed, as the French soldiers never went to church and had no priests with them. For you must know that during the revolution there was no religion whatever in the French army. Menou, continued Napoleon, really turned Mahometan, which was the reason I left him behind. End quote. Note, Voices from St. Helena. End note. End footnote. The general-in-chief had a Turkish dress made, which he once put on merely in joke. One day he desired me to go to breakfast without waiting for him, and that he would follow me. In about a quarter of an hour, he made his appearance in his new costume. As soon as he was recognised, he was received with a loud burst of laughter. He sat down very coolly, but he found himself so encumbered and ill at ease in his turban and oriental robe that he speedily threw them off, and was never tempted to a second performance of the masquerade. About the end of August, Bonaparte wished to open negotiations with the Pasha of Acre, nicknamed the Butcher. He offered Jezar his friendship, sought his in return, and gave him the most consolatory assurances of the safety of his dominions. He promised to support him against the Grand Seigneur, at the very moment when he was assuring the Egyptians that he would support the Grand Seigneur against the Bays. But Jezar, confiding in his own strength and in the protection of the English, who had anticipated Bonaparte, was deaf to every overture, and would not even receive Beauvoisin, who was sent to him on the 22nd of August. A second envoy was beheaded at Acre. The occupations of Bonaparte and the necessity of obtaining a more solid footing in Egypt retarded for the moment the invasion of that Pashalik which provoked vengeance by its barbarities, besides being a dangerous neighbour. From the time he received the accounts of the disaster of Abu Kir until the revolt of Cairo on the 22nd of October, Bonaparte sometimes found the time hang heavily on his hands. 
though he devoted attention to everything, yet there was not sufficient occupation for his singularly active mind. When the heat was not too great, he rode on horseback, and on his return, if he found no dispatches to read, which often happened, no orders to send off, or no letters to answer, he was immediately absorbed in reverie, and would sometimes converse very strangely. One day, after a long pause, he said to me, Do you know what I am thinking of? Upon my word, that would be very difficult. You think of such extraordinary things. I don't know, continued he, that I shall ever see France again. But if I do, my only ambition is to make a glorious campaign in Germany, in the plains of Bavaria, there to gain a great battle and to avenge France for the defeat of Hochstadt. After that, I would retire into the country and live quietly. He then entered upon a long dissertation on the preference he would give to Germany as the theatre of war, the fine character of the people, and the prosperity and wealth of the country, and its power of supporting an army. Footnote. So early as 1794, Napoleon had suggested that Austria should always be attacked in Germany, not in Italy. Quote, it is Germany that should be overwhelmed. That done, Italy and Spain fall of themselves. Germany should be attacked, not Spain or Italy. If we obtain great success, advantage should never be taken of it to penetrate into Italy, while Germany, unweakened, offers a formidable front. End quote. Jung's Bonaparte, tome 2, page 936. He was always opposed to the wild plans which had ruined so many French armies in Italy, and which the Directory tried to force on him, of marching on Rome and Naples, after every success in the north. End footnote. His conversations were sometimes very long, but always replete with interest. In these intervals of leisure, Bonaparte was accustomed to retire to bed early. I used to read to him every evening. When I read poetry, he would fall asleep. But when he asked for the life of Cromwell, I counted on sitting up pretty late. In the course of the day, he used to read and make notes. He often expressed regret at not receiving news from France, for correspondence was rendered impracticable by the numerous English and Turkish cruisers. Many letters were intercepted and scandalously published. Not even family secrets and communications of the most confidential nature were respected. About the middle of September in this year, 1798, Bonaparte ordered to be brought to the house of Elfie Bay half a dozen Asiatic women whose beauty he had heard highly extolled. But their ungraceful obesity displeased him, and they were immediately dismissed. A few days after, he fell violently in love with Madame Fauré, the wife of a lieutenant of infantry. She was very pretty, and her charms were enhanced by the rarity of seeing a woman in Egypt who was calculated to please the eye of a European. Bonaparte engaged for her a house adjoining the palace of Elfie Bay, which we occupied. He frequently ordered dinner to be prepared there, and I used to go there with him at seven o'clock and leave him at nine. This connection soon became the general subject of gossip at headquarters. Through a feeling of delicacy to Monsieur Fauré, the general-in-chief gave him a mission to the directory. 
he embarked at alexandria and the ship was captured by the english who being informed of the cause of his mission were malicious enough to send him back to egypt instead of keeping him prisoner bonaparte wished to have a child by madame Furet, but this wish was not realized a celebrated soothsayer was recommended to bonaparte by the inhabitants of cairo who confidentially vouched for the accuracy with which he could foretell future events he was sent for and when he arrived i venture and a sheikh were with the general the prophet wished first to exercise his skill upon bonaparte who however proposed that i should have my fortune told first to which i acceded without hesitation to afford an idea of his prophetic skill i must mention that since my arrival in cairo i had been in a very weak state the passage of the nile and the bad food we had had for twelve days had greatly reduced me so that i was miserably pale and thin after examining my hands feeling my pulse my forehead and the nape of my neck the fortune-teller shrugged his shoulders and in a melancholy tone told venture that he did not think it right to inform me of my fate i gave him to understand that he might say what he pleased as it was a matter of indifference to me after considerable hesitation on his part and pressing on mine he announced to me that the earth of egypt would receive me in two months i thanked him and he was dismissed when we were alone the general said to me well what do you think of that i observed that the fortune-teller did not run any great risk in foretelling my death which was a very probable circumstance in the state in which i was but added i if i procure the wines which i have ordered from france you will soon see me get round again the art of imposing on mankind has at all times been an important part of the art of governing and it was not that portion of the science of government which bonaparte was the least acquainted with he neglected no opportunity of showing off to the egyptians the superiority of france in arts and sciences but it happened oftener than once that the simple instinct of the egyptians thwarted his endeavours in this way some days after the visit of the pretended fortune-teller he wished if i may so express myself to oppose conjurer to conjurer for this purpose he invited the principal sheikhs to be present at some chemical experiments performed by m berthollet the general expected to be much amused at their astonishment but the miracles of the transformation of liquids electrical commotions and galvanism did not elicit from them any symptom of surprise they witnessed the operations of our able chemist with the most imperturbable indifference when they were ended the sheikh el bekri desired the interpreter to tell m berthollet that it was all very fine but said he ask him whether he can make me be in morocco and here at one and the same moment m berthollet replied in the negative with a shrug of his shoulders oh then said the sheikh he is not half a sorcerer our music produced no greater effect upon them they listened with insensibility to all the airs that were played to them with the exception of marlbrook when that was played they became animated and were all in a motion as if ready to dance 
an order which had been issued on our arrival in cairo for watching the criers of the mosques had for some weeks been neglected at certain hours of the night these criers addressed prayers to the prophet as it was merely a repetition of the same ceremony over and over again in a short time no notice was taken of it the turks perceiving this negligence substituted for their prayers and hymns cries of revolt and by this sort of verbal telegraph insurrectionary excitement was transmitted to the northern and southern extremities of egypt by this means and by the aid of secret emissaries who eluded our feeble police and circulated real or forged firmans of the sultan disavowing the concord between france and the Porte, and provoking war the plan of a revolution was organized throughout the country the signal for the execution of this plan was given from the minarets on the night of the twentieth of october and on the morning of the twenty-first it was announced at headquarters that the city of cairo was in open insurrection the general-in-chief was not as has been stated in the isle of Rueda. he did not hear the firing of the alarm guns he rose when the news arrived it was then five o'clock he was informed that all the shops were closed and that the french were attacked a moment after he heard of the death of general dupuis commandant of the garrison who was killed by a lance in the street bonaparte immediately mounted his horse and accompanied by only thirty guides visited all the threatened points restored confidence and with great presence of mind adopted measures of defence he left me at headquarters with only one sentinel but he had been accurately informed of the situation of the insurgents and such was my confidence in his activity and foresight that i had no apprehension and awaited his return with perfect composure this composure was not disturbed even when i saw a party of insurgents attack the house of monsieur esteve our paymaster-general which was situated on the opposite side of Esbequier place monsieur esteve was fortunately able to resist the attack until troops from boulac came up to his assistance after visiting all the posts and adopting every precautionary measure bonaparte returned to headquarters finding me still alone with the sentinel he asked me smiling whether i had not been frightened not at all general i assure you replied i it was about half-past eight in the morning when bonaparte returned to headquarters and while at breakfast he was informed that some bedouin arabs on horseback were trying to force their entrance into cairo he ordered his aide-de-camp tsukovsky to mount his horse to take with him fifteen guides and proceed to the point where the assailants were most numerous this was the bab el nasser or the gate of victory croisier observed to the general-in-chief that Sulkowski had scarcely recovered from the wounds at salehia and he offered to take his place he had his motives for this bonaparte consented but Sulkowski had already set out within an hour after one of the fifteen guides returned covered in blood to announce that Sulkowski and the remainder of his party had been cut to pieces this was speedy work for we were still at table when the sad news arrived mortars were planted on mount mokatan which commands cairo the populace expelled from all the principal streets by the troops 
assembled in the square of the great mosque and in the little streets running into it which they barricaded the firing of the artillery on the heights was kept up with vigour for two days about twelve of the principal chiefs of cairo were arrested and confined in an apartment at headquarters they awaited with the calmest resignation the death they knew they merited but bonaparte merely detained them as hostages the aga in the service of bonaparte was astonished that sentence of death was not pronounced upon them and he said shrugging his shoulders and with a gesture apparently intended to provoke severity you see they expect it on the third the insurrection was at an end and tranquillity restored numerous prisoners were conducted to the citadel in obedience to an order which i wrote every evening twelve were put to death nightly the bodies were then put into sacks and thrown into the nile there were many women included in these nocturnal executions i am not aware that the number of victims amounted to thirty per day as bonaparte assured general Renier in a letter which he wrote to him six days after the restoration of tranquillity every night said he we cut off thirty heads this i hope will be an effectual example i am of opinion that in this instance he exaggerated the extent of his just revenge some time after the revolt of cairo the necessity of ensuring our own safety forced the commission of a terrible act of cruelty a tribe of arabs in the neighbourhood of cairo had surprised and massacred a party of french the general-in-chief ordered his aide-de-camp croisier to proceed to the spot surround the tribe destroy the hats kill all the men and conduct the rest of the population to cairo the order was to decapitate the victims and bring their heads in sacks to cairo to be exhibited to the people eugene Bourne accompanied croisier who joyfully set out on this horrible expedition in hope of obliterating all recollection of the affair of Damanhur. on the following day the party returned many of the poor arab women had been delivered on the road and the children had perished of hunger heat and fatigue about four o'clock a troop of asses arrived at Izbekia place laden with sacks the sacks were opened and the heads rolled out before the assembled populace i cannot describe the horror i experienced but i must nevertheless acknowledge that this butchery ensured for a considerable time the tranquillity and even the existence of the little caravans which were obliged to travel in all directions for the service of the army shortly before the loss of the fleet the general-in-chief had formed the design of visiting suez to examine the traces of the ancient canal which united the nile to the gulf of arabia and also to cross the latter the revolt at cairo caused this project to be adjourned until the month of december before his departure for suez bonaparte granted the commissary souci leave to return to france he had received a wound in the right hand when on board the zebec serre i was conversing with him on deck when he received this wound at first it had no appearance of being serious but some time after he could not use his hand general bonaparte dispatched a vessel with sick and wounded who were supposed to be incurable to the number of about eighty 
all envied their fate and were anxious to depart with them but the privilege was conceded to very few however those who were disappointed had no cause for regret we never know what we wish for captain marengo who landed at augusta in sicily supposing it to be a friendly land was required to observe quarantine for twenty-two days and information was given of the arrival of the vessel to the court which was at palermo on the twenty fifth of january seventeen ninety nine all on board the french vessel were massacred with the exception of twenty-one who were saved by a neapolitan frigate and conducted to messing where they were detained before he conceived the resolution of attacking the turkish advanced guard in the valleys of syria bonaparte had formed a plan of invading british india from persia he had ascertained through the medium of agents that the shah of persia would for a sum of money paid in advance consent to the establishment of military magazines on certain points of his territory bonaparte frequently told me that if after the subjugation of egypt he could have left fifteen thousand men in that country and have had thirty thousand disposable troops he would have marched on the euphrates he was frequently speaking about the deserts which were to be crossed to reach persia how many times have i seen him extended on the ground examining the beautiful maps which he had brought with him and he would sometimes make me lie down in the same position to trace to me his projected march this reminded him of the triumphs of his favourite hero alexander with whom he so much desired to associate his name but at the same time he felt that these projects were incompatible with our resources the weakness of the government and the dissatisfaction which the army already evinced privation and misery are inseparable from all these remote operations this favourite idea still occupied his mind a fortnight before his departure for syria was determined on and on the twenty fifth of january seventeen ninety nine he wrote to tippu saib as follows quote, you are of course already informed of my arrival on the banks of the red sea with a numerous and invincible army eager to deliver you from the iron yoke of england i hasten to request that you will send me by the way of mascat or mocha an account of the political situation in which you are i also wish that you could send to suez or grand cairo some able man in your confidence with whom i may confer footnote it is not true as has often been stated that tippu saib wrote to general bonaparte he could not reply to a letter written on the 23rd of January, owing to the great difficulty of communication, the considerable distance, and the short interval which elapsed between the 25th of January and the fall of the Empire of Mysore, which happened on the 20th of April following. The letter to Tipu Saib commenced, Citizen Sultan, Burien. End footnote. End of chapter 16